Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hello, I'm Scott Postman, your host, and I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Chris Schlecht. Chris, good to have you today. It is a delight to be here. I'm honored. Thanks so much. Awesome. Well, Dr. Schlecht, of course, is um, the Fellow of History at New St. Andrews College. And senior Fellow of History. Senior Fellow. Okay, so we want, right. to, we want to make sure we get that plugged in there right. Uh, <laughs> he holds a PhD in History from Washington State University, a graduate degree in History from University of Idaho, and a BA from Washington State University as well. He taught courses in U.S. history in ancient Rome at Washington State University and is currently, as we mentioned, the Senior Fellow of History at New St. Andrews College, where he teaches courses in ancient and medieval civilizations, U.S. history, the history of American Christianity, medieval education, and classical rhetoric, among other subjects. Dr. Schlecht is also the Director of New St. Andrews College's graduate program in classical and Christian studies, and he's authored uh, as well as contributed to numerous books and articles appearing in several classical Christian publications, as well as the National Park Service's Gateway uh, Getaway series. That was pretty neat to, to read that. Dr. Schlecht is a teaching elder at Trinity Reformed Church in Moscow, Idaho. He and his wife, Brenda, have five children and five grandchildren. And as a impressive as a resume or CV as this is, I think that last one, the five grandchildren is pretty awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, and I thought that was more updated. I have eight now. Eight. Oh, wow. Eight and then uh, ninth on the way. Ninth on the way. Congratulations. Yes. So, we're very excited. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we're here today to talk about the liberal arts and um, you and I have talked in the past and I know this is uh, a conversation that you guys have been having at New St. Andrews uh, about the definition and the boundaries of the liberal, liberal arts boundaries in terms of, you know, what, what's actually included in it and what would be excluded from the liberal arts. And this is one of those topics that uh, oftentimes we, we use it pretty lightly. You know, we throw it around the term and it is kind of inclusive of a lot of things. And so you've written an article and, uh, or maybe say are writing an article um, that discusses this. And so I'm interested to, to talk to you about this and uh, get your thoughts on uh, what is or what are the liberal arts and how do we define that? So if you're ready to get into this, um, would you mind just helping us start out with what are some of the concerns for the use of the liberal arts? For example, you use a couple of different, uh, like uh, some Texas schools and some other schools and, and the various ways they use uh, the term, and maybe talk a little bit about that and why that might be problematic. Well, I think we're all familiar with colloquialism surrounding the liberal arts. I go to a liberal arts college, someone might say, or the old adage, you know, I have a liberal arts degree. Do you want fries with that? We're, <laughs> we're used to those sort of, you know, street banter understandings of liberal arts, and we all have a sense of kind of what we mean, maybe. But when you're cracking jokes about liberal arts majors, you don't need to be precise about your definitions. <laughs> but if we're educators and we're, uh, working in institutions like I do at New St. Andrews, and we have a degree called a bachelor's degree in liberal arts and culture, then the expectation upon us, it's sort of a, a burden upon us 
that we need to know what we're talking about. What is it that's included in there? Because that's a degree that we're actually conferring upon our own students. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would say that I have a duty as a senior fellow at New St. Andrews to know what it means. And institutionally, the college does. But that's born of, and I think maybe this is where you were getting at, I think that institutionally in higher education, we've really allowed a lot of slop to enter in and we don't know what we mean anymore. So oftentimes you'll have a university that includes a college of liberal arts and that same university might have a college of nursing and a college of communications or, you know, you imagine the, the org chart of a university with its various colleges. Oftentimes liberal arts will be in the name of one of those colleges. And purportedly it means that there are certain major fields of study that are liberal arts, major fields of study versus say the college of sciences, (laughs) which might be other fields of study. So you're, you're saying this is more than say what Charles Murray meant in um, his book on real education. I think he published it back in like 2005. He's a Harvard um, educator and, and, um, I think a libertarian historian or something, but, uh, but he was talking about the way that liberal arts today in most universities include things like, you know, the history of rock and roll and, um, you know, gender studies and, and a, a, a broad, you know, array of things like that. So you're, you're talking about more, more than just dumbing down what's called the liberal arts. And you're talking about maybe some confusion between the oh, use, um, it, in, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, Again, among educators, I'm fine with cracking liberal arts jokes mm-hmm. because we don't, we're not having a whole lot of expectations of our terms and categories in those exchanges. But uh, I can, well, in my paper, I, I kind of lead off with the University of Texas. This is in Austin, Texas. The College of Liberal Arts includes African and African diaspora studies, American studies, Asian studies, Asian American studies, Asian cultures and languages, French studies, Italian studies, Jewish. You know, the, um, and the list goes on. They've got over 40 major fields of studies that are within the domain of liberal arts purportedly. But it also includes, and I find this interesting, humanities and history mm. are liberal arts too. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, I, and I have a degree in history. I teach history. I'm not, the, my point is not to raise an objection against Asian American studies or against history or against humanities. It's what, actually goes into the bucket of liberal arts Mm -hmm. and what might be excluded from the bucket. If the concept is going to have some coherence, we need to have some sense of boundaries. And I understand sometimes there might be some outliers that are hard to categorize, even conceding that. uh, What do we mean by it? Um, The University of Texas, it includes economics, psychology, and sociology. So apparently those are liberal arts too. So Asian American studies, sociology, those are all liberal arts. And then we, they have a college of natural sciences and we can look there for a list of things that lie outside the bucket of liberal arts. That's a different bucket. So we've got social sciences, natural sciences, humanities, all and and various kinds of studies, you know, uh, provincial studies or, or different uh, ethnic studies that are being, you know, lumped into the bucket of liberal arts. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's a, that's exactly right. And if we look at uh, the College of Natural Sciences, 
it includes mathematics and astronomy, hmm. which if you're familiar with the history of the seven liberal arts, those are actually among the seven of the liberal arts, mathematics and astronomy, they're quadrivium studies, if you will. So wait a minute, the liberal arts are not the liberal arts. And then the non-liberal arts are the liberal arts. Uh, where, how does this register with historical usage? Do we have any idea what we're talking about? So, so I, yeah, that no wonder this could get very confusing, you know, for a lot of people. And, and I think, I, I think something you said, even before the show, the idea that, um, uh, you know, maybe we're operating and, and heading in the right direction for education, say a parent who is you right. know, trying to educate their, their children classic in a classical Christian, you know, pedagogy, um, maybe defining all these terms isn't quite as important, but if we're going to be educators, if we're going to be uh, shaping a movement, shaping a way that education is going to work, then we need to know what is an art? What, what are liberal <laughs> arts? What, you know, what are we talking exactly. about? Exactly. Define your terms. Yeah. Um, yes. Again, at this point, I mean, I, there are some of these, some things going on in these fields that I, that I might criticize, but the point is my, my point is larger than that. I'm trying not to be petty here. Uh, and catch people out the uh, it, and I can just, this reinforces the same problem. If you go to some universities, they will have a college of arts and sciences. Okay. I've seen, there are other universities that have college of arts and letters. Still other colleges or, or universities have colleges of arts and humanities, like liberal arts and humanities. So am I adding to the am I broadening the definition of little liberal arts if I if I pair it with sciences or if I pair it with letters or if I pair it with humanities? What do those pairings do? Do they stretch the term? Or if is a college of liberal arts and humanities in one state different than the college of arts and sciences that's in another state? You yeah, know? I, yeah, they can see how that could become confusing, especially if a student was, you know, maybe they started out in one school and they, they, they moved to another state. Um, you know, that in itself could be a, a completely different, you know, animal for them. You know, what, right. where am I actually headed? But then, you know, largely when we're, we're talking about the broader, uh, academy, um, it doesn't sound like we really even know what we're talking about, or we're at least right. using it so loosely that we need, uh, to figure this out. So, um, would you mind then let's, let's start, uh, as you do in the paper and maybe break down, um, what are the arts, what are the sciences, what are the humanities, how are these different, how are they alike? And, and maybe we just start by defining some of these for our audience and, and see what this uh, looks like and where it goes. Yes. I, and, uh, you're right. That's what I do in the paper. What I, one thing I should say by way of preface before we dive into this is that as you look at usage among educators over time and being a classical educator, one thing that I want to do, and, and I know you, Scott, you, you too, want to take history seriously, sure. the, that I identify myself as a member of a community that is far older than I am. Yes. And, we, <laughs> you know, so... So we want people in the community. I want to do justice to the definition of liberal arts among, as the term is used among those who are sort of my people within the domain of education over the ages. Yes. Yeah. Right? That's good. So that's kind of a procedural thing. When we, when we do that, we encounter some challenges and this is something that we see in the contemporary classical education scene. Okay. Um, when we try to, 
we have definitions of classical education. Those become kind of challenging. So what do you mean by classical education? And what do you mean by the liberal arts? We, um, what we find is that there is some variation mm-hmm. over it, about the term liberal arts. And I would suggest that it's incumbent upon anyone who is an educator to come up with a definition that actually is fairly precise while recognizing that there might be other legitimate definitions. Sure, sure. So, so just so long about, as we're clarifying what it is that we mean, then we're being honest. Then there could be different terms and different points of history that are talking about the same thing as what I'm hearing you say. Um, or maybe the same term is used at different points in history to mean different things, um, even though using the same term. So we're really wanting to, to kind of unpack you know, where these terms have been used um, inconsistently or, or equivocally um, or where maybe the same thing is talked about right. but using different terms as well. So uh, that's. Yeah. You know. So exactly. So the educators through the ages, they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And when the term liberal arts would be, when they would use the term liberal arts, they knew what they were talking about and it would have a more or less coherent usage with any with anyone who writes the term down, you know, but when you look at somebody 500 years later, he might have some differences in how he construes what's included in the term than the one 500 years earlier. I would want to call myself, you know, the brother to both of those guys, but if I'm going to be faithful to them, I'm not going to try to come up with a lowest common denominator definition of Mm. liberal arts. What I'm going to come up with is, is actually probably going to be a composite of, you know, of this piece of history, that piece of history, just so long as I'm clear, someone else might come up with a different composite, but they're going to be faithful to the tradition. If they're being clear too, they're honoring the tradition. If they're just saying, okay, here's, here's the definition that I'm working with. And here's what I mean by the liberal arts. Um, Because the term does it, it admits a variation over time. And, sure. you, um, and I think that that's, that uh, addresses a misconception that some people run into where there, there is the liberal arts, capital T, capital L, capital A. And, and it's this cast in stone across time, unmovable concept. No, that's not how language and that's not how categories work. Yeah. Well, it, it always seems, you know, just like history, (laughs) it's always a little more complex than, than just some of the narratives or or meta narratives that, that sort of overarch uh, a particular event or, or person. So, um, so let's maybe, uh, as we, um, Start historically. Maybe we'll just yep. start from the from the yeah, beginning. All of that's prolegomena here. Yeah, yeah that <laughs> we haven't got. We're still in the starting blocks here. You're trying to say get on the road, Chris. No, no. This <laughs> is no. This is really good. I I think I think this is um this is important because you know you you started to you you mentioned briefly, and I know you'll probably come back to this, but this idea of a canon, so to speak. Right. Um, we we almost canonize liberal arts sometimes. Whether uh, I think Dr. Shaw, um, the late Dr. Shaw, called the liberal arts, he said it's both a body of knowledge and a way of 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 learning. Um, yes. You know, a pedagogy and a body of knowledge, and and I think he's right there. But that's a very broad definition that, as you said, could admit a lot of things. So let's start historically. Let's go back maybe to the, the, the Greco-Roman period and, and moving forward, or even if there's a division between Greek and Roman thought, uh, moving forward to maybe Reformation thought. Yeah, just 
Um, so the term itself arises first in Cicero, in Cicero's work on invention, Artes Liberales. And he lists some things. Uh, it, it, he's not trying to come up with a list of which are the liberal arts when he mentions it. He's referring more to the person for whom the liberal arts are, which is for the freemen. So these are the arts that are tailored for the freemen. And so that's what the accent is on his emphasis is. And it's clear what he means is the individual who is not preoccupied with subsistence labor. Mm -hmm. He has other, he outsources that to his slaves, to his employees, you know, so if you're working the fields or if you're building the house, you know, we need food, clothing, and shelter. And the kind of arts that are deployed toward providing for food, clothing, and shelter are not the liberal ones. Okay. <laughs> so I've, I've heard those called either servile arts or the common arts. Yeah. Um, how is, is that? An and those term? are, and those are good terms to, to sort of juxtapose. And it really is a class distinction kind of mm. thing, you know, a, um, and I don't mean that in, in a Marxist sense, more of, you know, what's your calling? Are you occupied in sub, in subsistence? And most people are, especially in the pre-industrial world. Sure. Yeah. Uh, most people are, you're an artisan, that sort of thing. Now it's important to recognize that those people are artists but they're just not engaged in liberal arts, which introduces an important distinction here too, is we need to, in order to get some traction into what we mean by liberal arts, we need to think about what an art is. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that are not arts and there are other things that are. And then once we settle, which, what arts are, then we can talk about what the liberal ones are. But uh, anyway, I'm anticipating myself here, but to move forward in history, what we what we see developing is uh, the term liberal arts being attached to a curriculum, okay. and it it really becomes, I would say, sharply attached to a curriculum um, in the sixth and seventh centuries with Martianus Capella and Cassiodorus. Cassiodorus is going to be in the Christian tradition. Uh, and they're going to be seven in number by the time you get to that point. <clears throat> and that's a that's an interesting juncture. We still need to then look at the antecedents mm -hmm. uh, that get us there. So we're going to get terminology from Cicero and from the Romans. So that's the terminology of the liberal arts. What comprises the liberal arts up to that point are going to have a few different sources. Uh, the Pythagoreans are going to uh, they're going to traffic in what we will identify as the quadrivium. Okay. And so Plato's going to carry that forward and that's coming out of the Greek tradition. Uh, and uh, so that's, uh, and we see those four arts or sometimes sciences, depending on who you talk to, even in antiquity, um, you know, and so that's going to be arithmetic, geometry, uh, astronomy, and harmony. Okay, so those four, those come forward from the Pythagorean sort of through Plato. Mm -hmm. um, and then alongside that, I would say a parallel development would be the language arts, which we're going to recognize as the trivium. That's grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. And that's also happening in the Greek world. They're kind of engaged in a different game than the Pythagoreans are, but they inhabit the same society. 
But by the time we get, we move forward in the late Roman, early antique period, that's what's going to congeal into the seven liberal arts. That's, that's interesting uh, that, that you brought up the fact that there's almost simultaneously these two um, lines of thought. I think um, Aristotle, or, or not lines of thought, but, but really categories of learning, you know, from, from right. what becomes a quadrivium, what becomes a trivium. Because I think um, when we look at Aristotle, and, and I'm just pulling this off the top of my head as, as I recall it, you know, he lists out what education consists of. And I think it's mm-hmm. like reading and writing and, and math. And, and he's very general. He's got music in there. Music. Too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so it's, it's very, um, it, it's not as categorized as that. So by the time we get to Aristotle we're already in some ways kind of pulling it all together, but, but not really haven't laid it out in a kind of the way we have with the trivium and quadrivium, or at least it seems to me, would that be wrong? right? I think, I think you're exactly right. And this creates uh, or this points to an important historical moment that's happening in what we might call the late antique period, you know, the decline of Roman learning. Uh, we have uh, it, it's in a period of decline where you have people engaged in an effort to preserve something that they fear is going to be lost. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're going to preserve something, you need to sort of uh, inventory that which is preserving. And so, and this would be the clearly the case of Cassiodorus, for example, yeah. where um, if we go even a uh, hundred years prior to Cassiodorus, um, this would be Augustine's time. Augustine, is concerned to show Christians how to navigate a universe of learning where the pagans control the infrastructure. Mm. And so, and he doesn't have to worry about whether the infrastructure itself is going to be intact. So the problem is how to be a Christian when, you know, the, the pagans kind of occupy the land. And so how to sift and discern and that sort of, that's, that's Augustine's uh, concern by the and we fast forward a hundred years, we get to Cassiodorus, that that infrastructure is eroding. The pagans themselves are not manning their own store. These texts are written in perishable materials, and if we're going to re- preserve them, we need to. And and we have a limited number of copyists. We need to decide what we're going to save. Yeah. And in order to determine what we're going to save, we need to actually name them. And so this is what's going to give us the seven liberal arts, the effort to sort of uh, inventory what we need to prioritize in a sense of loss. You're not going to, you don't see that instinct to enumerate which are the ones, which are the arts until you face a circumstance of perceived decline. Now that that's interesting to me, the way that you brought this up in, in terms of inventory, um, because, uh, would you say, um, even in church history and theology, we've sort of done this, haven't we? Where, you know, where you have, you know, several years or, or several periods of, of the, the councils and, um, and these different uh, heresies are being, you know, worked right. out and argued. And then you have somebody like Augustine who comes along and sort of systematizes and, and lays out uh, a sort of theology that's picked up. Aquinas tries to do this later a little bit differently, though. Um, and then Calvin comes along even after the Reformation, and, and there's a, a sort of a decline in the church. Um, so in church history, um, at least I see it, there's this 
these attempts at different stages, and they've been very fruitful and very helpful attempts to to clarify and and sort of codify what it is we believe or what it is we know about this particular subject. So while we're I'm talking about two different areas, you know, specifically in, in say church and theology. Um, in education or in, in just, you know, the body of knowledge that's collected in the Western tradition, I'm hearing you say that those, that kind of inventory is happening at the time of Cassidorius again, and then maybe even later in the Renaissance where we're trying to sort of codify and inventory what it is that we know and collect. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. There are, there are different motivations for systematization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one can be pedagogical. So I'm going to try to makes sense to someone else that I'm trying to explain it to. So I'm going to categorize and distinguish for that reason. Um, when you talk about the creeds, the, the doctrinal formulations of the church, sometimes you see that pedagogical purpose being met oftentimes with the development of the great creeds in the, of the early church where they're facing a threat. Yeah. They're facing a threat, the threat of heresy. And so we're going to demarcate, uh, Trinitarian orthodoxy over against Arianism in the Nicene Creed, for example. Sure. Um, the th- when we see the seven liberal arts, I think we we have the codification into seven as is a reaction to a threat. This was not a threat of heresy so much as the threat of deterioration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, know, so that's a, we're going to lose it. Yeah, if we yeah, we're going to yeah. lose it. So what are we going to save? We need to describe and name and label what we're going to save so we know because we're going to have to assign some monks, which texts to, <laughs> to copy, you know, you know, it's just a practical sure. need. So yeah, it is in the face of a threat. Um, so systematization, systematization, I think arises from a number of possible historical concerns. Um, but that's when we get the seven liberal arts, I think we need to point to that one, the fear of deterioration. So we need to codify, um, we need to codify the learning that's, there sort of. And then as we move a little bit further forward, we see characterized characters like Boethius and uh, Isidore Seville, mm-hmm. both very influential. This is where we really see that, that coalescence into seven. There are people who predate them in the seven liberal arts. Again, Martianus, Cassiodorus are going to be key, but, but it's going to really have momentum carrying forward as a catalog of seven due to the influence of all of those guys. And we have to throw in Boethius and Isidore Seville as, uh, as influential in that enterprise. Now for our audience. So, so Isidore is one of the early encyclopedias, not the, not the later encyclopedias that we often think about, but he, he does uh, catalog, you know, right. that, that information. And of course he calls them, you know, the, the liberal arts are seven. So by that time we're talking about them that way. And maybe this is, you know, in, in our uh, modern attempt to, to recover this classical education, this is where um, I'm hearing you say maybe this is where we've kind of picked that up and, and we're going to run with it? Or? Yeah, the, you're, when you're looking at the catalog of seven, that's definitely the, the origin. We're talking about the origin story of cataloging it as seven. Mm-hmm. But, but <laughs> um, some, some others, though, have cataloged it as nine and even 11. Isn't that accurate? No, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. And Varro is nine. Varro okay. is the Roman who who identified nine, and Vitruvius has eleven. There, there are others. Like, you know, which are the liberal arts and which are not. And you see, um, you know, it, interesting discussion surrounding 
uh, particularly medicine and architecture mm-hmm. um, okay. as to whether those are among the liberal arts. Another one that gets thrown into the mix is law is okay. law <laughs> among the liberal arts. Um, but the existence of these great thinkers, and this is, this is an important return to an earlier prefatory remark I made. These are guys that I want to be kindred, identify myself as kindred with as a classical educator, right? Sure. If I drew this really wooden insistence around liberal arts, then I've hived off people of the tradition. Ah, yes. <laughs> so we're coming into this tradition. This is a heritage in a sense that we're receiving, and we don't want to, you know, mark off people outside of the, the you know, being in the, the, the stream of the heritage, I guess, because right. maybe they look at it or include some others that are additional. Right. It's not that yes. strict. Yes, and the and the heritage I would describe, and there's, here's the historian in me here. The uh, these are the people. Like who are who are my people in this heritage? Um, I don't identify who those people are by identifying who I agree with. Uh-huh. I'm not going to look for a consensus. Mm-hmm. What I am going to look for is you know we don't. It's not that we share everything in, in terms of our views about education. It's that we share the priority of conversation topics. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so they're my interlocutors. Yes. I want, this is the guy I want to be in conversation with and give some weight in the con lend some weight in the conversation. So that's uh, when we talk about the tradition um, and this is going to be my Protestantism showing here too. Sure. The tradition has never presented itself as a consensus um, in the details. Yes. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that because I often hear people or in, in conversation, there is a sort of assumption uh, and, 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 and hopefully it's not wide. It's maybe it's just within a, a few experiences I've had, but that there's this, this idea that there is a consensus. And if we are, are able to kind of uh, grapple with all the different things that are said, we can kind of triangulate into some sort of truth or some you know, some codified knowledge that is, uh, that is reality or, you know, uh, rather than these are a, a long stream or long heritage of interlocutors that we can have conversations with about ideas, the consequences of those ideas and, and how, you know, one generation's ideas have shaped another generation. But really having an understanding of knowledge as it has you know, shaped uh, the Western tradition through these conversations. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Right. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. I do with my uh, sophomores at new St. Andrews, if I can draw an analogy here, you know, people might talk about the Greek view of the gods. You know, there is no Greek Greek. (laughs) view of the gods. That's silly any more than there's an American view of God. Yeah. You know, if you were, we know that, um, that the United States is not homogenous. It's rather heterogeneous. If you were to just go out on the street, interview somebody, say, what do you think about God? Is that going to represent the American view of God? (laughs) And, and you know what? The Greeks were the same way. And my students sometimes are startled when they see competing theologies between Herodotus, Thucydides and Homer, (laughs) all three, they disagree violently with one another (laughs) about the nature of the gods. And they're all Greek. But they share conversation topics. Yes. There's certain things they're they're engaged with one another and they're prepared to answer and consider one another. And that's what makes them Greek because they're in on the same conversation. Same, yeah, that's great. and that's true with Americans too. You know, so Christianity 
um, Orthodox Protestant Christianity has this dominant place in the United States. Not that everyone is an Orthodox Christian, but everyone's dealing with that cultural reality mm-hmm. as an atheist, as a Roman Catholic, as a Jew, as a, you know, and we're all Americans because of the way we relate to that conversation. That's what makes us Americans. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I think that's a that's a great analogy. So we've we've moved sort of from the Greco-Roman to um, you know medieval period in terms right. of, of how we understand the liberal arts. Can we move into before we? I, I would, I'd like to tackle some of the definitions, but as we sort of move into maybe let's stop at some places like the Renaissance, the Reformation, and maybe even the modern classical, kind of the renewal of classical Christian education. How, how is that seen or, or how is it treated in, in these different stopping points along the way? Yes, the, uh, <laughs> boy, each of those is, each of those deserved, the, the, the cursor deserves to hover over each of those for a long time. And so it's, it's, uh, you're challenging me to try to survey it, especially because I'm an egghead. And so I like to and, dig into the weeds, but if I could try briefly, as we get into the later middle ages, we might think of the scholastics. So this is going to be characters like Aquinas is going to be in the mix, but most importantly for our purposes, I think it's going to be, we're going to look at uh, you of St. Victor and uh, John of Salisbury, right, yeah. John of Salisbury and their important works on education. They are in a sense, assuming the sevenness of the liberal arts. It's interesting the way they, couch and formulate them. Um, Each of them is different from one another, but that kind of sets up what the folks in Italy in the time of what we might look back as the the period of humanism, of Renaissance humanism, the quarto sense. So this is going to be Virgerio, Piccolomini, um, so these are going to be some of the names we drop in the quarto centro, the, uh, you know, the, there's a, and if I was had a good Italian tongue, I could probably <laughs> articulate Piccolomini. There's probably a much better way. Vergerio. <laughs> I I actually had a grad student who was a trained opera singer who could pronounce these things just the way they the- <laughs> give them their due. Whereas I'm this barbaric guy, Piccolomini. That's, <laughs> That, that that Anglo. That, uh, that's right. That's right. That's, I mean, these Italian, these Italian thinkers, it's just beautiful when you hear the opera singer enunciate their names, but anyway, they're, they're reacting. Now these, these are uh, 15th century guys, guys writing in the 1400s reacting against the scholastics mm-hmm. and they're aiming for a different project. They're aiming for a different project that the scholastics understood the liberal arts really as skills and habits of thought, um, skills and habits of thought. And the humanists wanted to return to the texts themselves. And I would characterize the difference as a difference of how student and text and subject matter relate to one another. Interesting. In, in education. I mean, you think, I mean, one way of trying to, capture these developments is to actually think of that triad. When when you have an education, you have to deal with the teacher and you have to deal with the student. Okay. And you've got that encounter. Okay. And then you also have the subject matter that you're dealing with. And then usually by means of a text. Okay. Okay. And so how does that encounter that is, you know, if I'm trying to bring a student together with a text, what we see in the, 
in the, developing in the cathedral schools of the of the 10th and 11th centuries is the period of the charismatic teacher okay and uh, this is a time period where we don't have actually a lot of writing on education interesting when we have when we see john of salisbury and you saint victor those guys are 12th century guys 1100s um and uh, John of Salisbury has this great passage. You see some of these guys who are the scholastics talking about the great teachers of old. And uh, if you want to find out about education from, from this period, the ninth and the, well, or the 10th and the 11th centuries, you need to look at hagiography, biography. And what we see is in that period, it's the period of the charismatic teacher. Okay. The teacher has charisma. Now, I mean that in a very technical sense, too, where charisma is that attribute which inspires imitation. Okay. So the thing that a student is inspired by and that is influencing and leaving its imprint on the student is the person of the teacher and its personal charisma. Okay. So this, just just to pause you for a second, um, so this is going to be a little bit different than, say, going back to... Roman uh, thought on the liberal arts or, or, or on education, just, you know, well, um, what I'm setting you up to is help you to understand the scholastics and the humanists and what develops later. I think that the Romans talk about, if you read Quintilian, for example, he contemplates the notion of a charismatic teacher, you know, that mimetic, the, the real life presence of the living voice, uh-huh. you know, they, They'll use vocabulary like this, but in terms of a historical trend and who's reacting to what, we start to see some polarities develop a little later. Okay. So okay. we see these elements. They're they're about texts, and they're also about um, they're about charisma and, and so forth. But but in the time period we're talking about, one of the reasons why we don't have treatises on education or treatises on much of anything is that it's not the text that's leaving its imprint. It's the personal teacher. encounter with the teacher and texts are coming in. They, they actually would interact with texts, but um, I am, and some, some classical educators uh, act this way too. And I think it's a legitimate form of teaching. I am, you know, I might teach Thucydides to my students, but the key thing that's leaving the imprint on them is not Thucydides. It's the way I react to Thucydides. Ah, so yes. Thucydides is the stage prop for my charisma. Okay. So the text matters, but it's really me and the personal charisma of the teacher that's leaving the, leaving that. Now the scholastics react against that. The, the key shift is going to happen with Peter Abelard, who's going to challenge his teacher, William of Champeaux. It becomes, it creates, when it's in, in its bad form, it creates personality cults. Okay. People who are all blustered, you know, they're all hat and no cattle, you know? <laughs> um, and that's what Peter Abelard, who was kind of a punk, but brilliant, uh, was accusing William of Champeaux of being, um, and, uh, and, you wind up with the rise of scholasticism where the texts bear the authority. Okay. It's the, the text, it's not the, we're not moving from the absence of text to the presence of text. The texts have always been around. It's what's elevated is the thing. There's a shift in priority is what I mean. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And in the way the encounter happens so that the, the way that you're going to adjudicate between differing, charismatic presences by appealing to the text and the text has the weight. So you see that in scholastic method. If you look at Aquinas, Aquinas is 
taking different authorities and it's, and it's just analyzing these texts, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to come up with theorizing about it. And it's the ideas, the texts are the conduits for the ideas. Um, and so it's a, it's a pushback against charisma really. Um, and texts and teachers are conduits for the ideas. But then when we get to the humanists now and coming full circle, the humanists want to reassert, they want to reassert charisma. Okay. But they, but the charisma is from the text itself. Okay. So we, we went from charismatic teacher in that technical sense to the priority of the text. Right. um, Now to the charisma, the the charisma of the text itself. Right. The, the, yeah, the scholastic priority of the text is the text is a conduit for the ideas. Okay. Yeah. Right. So when the, when the humanists come in, they treat texts differently than the scholastics do. It's like when, when I, I have to read it in the original language so that I can appreciate the turn of phrase of Cicero. Mm, I'm having an encounter through time with Cicero with the, and, uh, so the text is a charismatic presence rather than a conduit for ideas. Okay. So when you look at the scholastics, for example, the scholastics wouldn't necessarily care if you copied Cicero. They would want, they would cite Cicero. They would, but it's okay for you to reformulate it. It's okay for you to epitomize it. It's okay for you to, whereas in the Renaissance, you've got to have the whole text okay. of Cicero. You've got to have it. And it's Cicero that's leaving his imprint. So it's a reassertion of charisma in education, but the the locus of charisma is no longer the teacher. The locus of charisma is the, the text itself. So the both the scholastics and the humanists centered on text, but they're doing something a little different. Is, is there a sense in which, and maybe I'm reaching too far in saying this, but it sounds like there's a sense in which it is a return to the charismatic teacher, but as that teacher is embodied in the text. So, so there's part right. of it. So is, the teacher can get out of the way. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if, uh, if you could imagine, for example, um, this, this would be one of those Bill and Ted's adventure time travel things, right? <laughs> that, uh, so if you get scholastics, if they got a hold of a printing press, um, and if, and humanists, if they had control of a printing press and a little bit later on, they're actually going to do that. Um, they would, they would want different things printed. Okay. Uh, and, uh, the scholastics would, would be fine with like textbooks. Okay. <laughs> compendia, okay. you know, compendia. And, and when you read the scholastics, again, read Aquinas, that's he's compendiizing, yes. right? Yeah. That's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, and a humanist can't suffer that. Let's you're killing it, man. You gotta go back to Cicero and read it. Start to finish in his language. Is this, you've got to read Virgil and you got to read in there. Never in translation, man, that would just be awful. Whereas a scholastic would be fine with translating. Okay. So because it's the ideas, it's not the way that's embodied in the turn of phrase, that sort of thing. Are we moving then into uh, maybe a proto ad fontes sort of spirit um, in the Renaissance or is it a different motivation? I would say it's a, it's a different execution on ad fontes because the scholastics want the ancient ideas, the ancient concepts, and they want to be faithful to the ideas. The humanists want to be faithful to the people Uh, and the, and they think that, you know, by reading Virgil, 
and by and it's got to be Virgil in the original. Okay, <laughs> then that will civilize me. That encounter with the charismatic Virgil. But you see, the importance of the teachers receded a little bit there too. So this is not the old charismatic teacher; it's the charismatic text. Text. Okay. So right. now, is that then through mimesis that I'm copying Virgil or, or Virgil, or I'm I'm emulating his? Yeah, what, I'm, yeah, I'm emulating him. So I'm. Uh, there's, I'm, I'm trying to remember, this might be Vergerio who says this. I might be confusing my humanists. I'd have to go back and look. But um, they, what you start seeing from the humanists is they start dropping names in book lists. Oh, okay. You got to read this author. You got to read this author. You got to read this author. And when you read their work on education, it's freighted with book lists. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but it's interesting to, to reason and tease out why, which is really interesting. The uh, like why to read Augustine. So Augustine will show up on a lot of lists because he is such a great stylist okay. and he put it so well. So this almost, uh, and, and I know I'm, I'm jumping way ahead of myself. This is, you know, in, in, in time is anachronistic, but this is almost sounding a lot like the formalists, um, the literary formalists who basically really, you know, content really is not as important as, the way that the content has been said. And so we're yeah. really focused on the, on the form of, of what is being said versus what is actually being said. Yes. Although I think it would be unfair to them if to characterize that any tension here, okay. You know, they, they cared about content, but you get the content through the form. Yeah. Whereas the scholastics, again, it's sort of like you get the, you know, the form, the form is indifferent. It's just the content. This is why Aquinas is so much different, right? <laughs> to, to, yeah. to read Aquinas so so uh, formulaic and 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 logical the way he lays things right. out, right? And yeah. it, and there's a beauty and an elegance to that. I yeah. think that we would all accede to. But again, that's just going to frustrate the humanist. Sure, you, know, you just gotta you gotta read Virgil, man. <laughs> but the, again, the teacher the the charisma of the teachers receded. Okay, um, by contrast to what the scholastics were re- replying to or answering was the charismatic teacher where it's the teacher's own personal charisma that's carrying or it, the teacher possesses charisma, that which inspires and places its imprint on the student. The humanist wanted that wanted like Cicero and Virgil and Augustine to place his imprint on me. The scholastics want the ideas. Okay. So uh, this is great. I mean, this is fantastic <laughs> to see these different emphases, you know, in, in these different periods, how do we move then, um, you know, from now we move, say, uh, and, and I know there's a lot we can say right, right. in between, but moving from say humanist to reformation is another big period. Right. But yeah, there's, uh, there's a couple of things going on there. First of all, the humanists are going to associate the liberal arts with the scholastics. Okay. And so they come up with the, the studia humanitatis. They actually, uh, they, they're not as fan. You'll find the term liberal arts used among them, mm-hmm. but, uh, but they are kind of pushing back on that idea of the seven liberal arts because they want it to be a book list. Okay. So I'm going to stop you right here for our audience sake. And this is, this is fascinating. So you're saying just by nature of the development, historical development of these ideas and the way that we're treating texts and teachers and and education, humanities is not the liberal arts. Yes. Yeah. There (laughs) you go. (laughs) Humanities and the liberal arts are different. different. Ah. Yes. Very good. And it doesn't mean that, um, well, and I think Scott, I'm I'm sure you would be with me in this. I don't want to, want to, uh, put those in tension with one another. There are ways of, or different ways of slicing the pie. 
Absolutely. And the, and there's some different priorities going on in the historical formulation. Now, you you talked about the Reformation. Um, one of the things that's going to be very sharp in the Reformation is a a pushback on that uh, that social class impetus. Okay. The pushback on the social class where the uh, there was, there's very clearly, this comes from the Romans primarily. You see it in Seneca and in Cicero. You see it, well, you'll, you'll see it in Aristotle too. The servile arts, you can see them looking down at their their yeah. noses at the servile arts. I, I love this. And I, and I just want to say this for our audience sakes. And I, and I hate to interrupt when you're, you're on the flow here, but this is probably for me, one of the greatest um, uh, contributions to our his, education, you know, the history of it in that elite versus servile sort of distinction that we often, we see it come up again, or at least, you know, there's a, there's an idea that it comes up again in our modern context about the way people look at education. But the Reformation does something with this that I think is, is extremely valuable. So I'm, you know, and I just wanted yeah. to preface that as right. for it, our listeners. Yes. And it's related to, it, it's emanating, of course, from Luther's doctrine that we refer back to as the priesthood of all believers. You know, he says, Luther says this explicitly in 1520 in that tract on the freedom of the Christian, one of his early tracts where he talks about the, uh, you know, this, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, the Cooper, the Stockinger, the, the wheelwright all have their place in the kingdom of God and God's plan. Yes. You know, it's the, the, uh, you know, and the, and the gifts that they contribute to the kingdom of God are deeply valuable, you know? Yeah. So, so that's a, that's a strong reformation idea. And it's associated of course, with literacy then mm-hmm. that literacy is not some, if the, if God speaks in his word and his word is actually a text, which it is, then we need to extend literacy through the ranks of society. Yeah. Um, and that is something that emerges in the early modern world. Um, I think probably the, while we could point to a number of characters who, who are working with this, you know, there's Sturm, Melanchthon, the, I would say uh, the real interesting development uh, and hallmark of this is seen in Comenius, uh, okay. Comenius's work. And, and Comenius is fascinating. Comenius is trying to, reconcile or or trying to deal with two big developments that we haven't seen previously that those humanists of the, of the 15th century didn't see. Um, And number one is the printing press. And number two is the, what we might call the democratization of education. Okay. And, uh, and so he actually has these radical proposals. Basically you need to make education scalable now. (laughs) Uh, He's trying to, he's trying to make education scalable and, um, and he's aware that you're going to have a dearth of teachers, uh, by when you consider it in light of the number of students that you want to have now, because you want to make everyone literate. And so he, he, he's the one who comes up with the first textbooks. Yeah the, you know, like the readers, primers, graduated primers and such the, uh, because he wants actually, uh, you know, to use textbooks to do some of the work of teaching just to make it scalable. Sure. Sure. (laughs) 
So, so you're you're saying this whole idea of democratization of education isn't new to the 20th century, uh, or or even the 19th century, with the you know the uh, the big push for um, you know uh, uh, even a government kind of led education. The idea of a democratization of education goes all the way back to the Reformation, right? And it's for a, a different purpose, but, but right. for a very important noble purpose, right? Yes, and I think things uh, what uh, where things really start to turn dark. <laughs> <laughs> we could, I'll put that, that. I mean, we're classical educators here, so we have to, we have to, we have to have a story of the fall. Dun, dun, that, dun, dun. That's right, and that's within. It's not with modernity, but with industrial modernity. Yes, um, yeah. you know. So when you start, when you turn into the 19th century, that's when we start to see some developments that uh, that are really concerning. Um, about uh, and that's and that's treating the people themselves as less of less than a person and more of the machine like apparatus. This so the scalability problem that Comenius was trying to confront. Um, I think he was actually faithfully trying to confront a good problem, uh, and he had did some scalability moves that I that I wouldn't want to embrace. Um, but if you see that through the lens, looking backward through modern industrial modernity then Comenius actually looks like a bad guy. I don't yeah. think he is. Sure. No, but, but people have, you know, as they have with anything, you know, you take something that's good and, and you can use it for nefarious purposes or just selfish purposes that become nefarious in its, you know, bigger context. Right. And that, and that's something that, I mean, we're with Comenius in this, you know, I was just before I came here, I was teaching Thucydides to my students right before I sat down with you and we all had our personal copy of Thucydides. Mm the heritage of Comenius. Yes. Um, you know, the idea that a student will have his own personal copy of a text, Comenius was the first person to actually contemplate a reality. Like what would edu- education look like? Wow. It used to be, you know, when you go through the ancient times in the middle ages, especially in the middle ages, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go through Cicero, there's one text in town and you got to go to the school for it. <laughs> and we're all going to, if we're going to gather around this text, you know, and you can sympathize with the scholastics who didn't want to assign any sort of charisma to that. Sure. Um, because it's just not accessible and realistic. Yeah. Wow. What, what a heritage we have. I mean, there's so many, you know, in that regard, being able to have our own text, we take that so much for granted right. today, you know, but that is something that, you know, it, it's a modern innovation. Thank you very much. Yes. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, it, it is interesting. You know, we like to think of ourselves as great books people, mm-hmm. you know, so if I'm reading Cicero with my students or Thucydides or, you know, you, you name it. Um, it's so important to realize that I, I think I'm having this engagement with history when in fact I went onto Amazon and I <laughs> clicked on this button and some voodoo happened with finances and then dropped on my doorstep is my own personal copy of this text. And I think that I'm having an encounter with the ancient world. (laughs) That's fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, anyway, we, we great books guys and I am a great books guy, but we need to get a grip on some realities here. Sure. Absolutely. The relationship between author and reader is utterly alien to the notion that that author had. Right. Yes. (laughs) 
Well, and, and there's so many contributions, and I think you pointed this out earlier, there's so many contributions at different stages of, of history. Um, while we often as classical educators come to modernity and look, you know, down upon it, um, there are a lot of great contributions, a lot of things that we can take away from that, even if, if it, you know, things in this period have been used in a wrong way. You know, we have a great heritage that we're a part of, and we get to enjoy such things because of that, you know, podcasts, yeah, a podcast <laughs> and uh, online education, even teaching, you know, uh, the kind of education that we can offer online today mm. could not have been done 10 years ago. Even we you, right. you couldn't have it. I remember in the late eighties, I took my first correspondence course where you would, you know, listen to a cassette tape, write, you know, uh, yes. and then you would snail mail it back and wait for the professor's comments on it. I mean, that was, that was this distance learning kind of education. Yes, yes, yes. I, I took one of those courses too. I remember <laughs> yeah. it well. And I got something out of it. It's, sure. But not, yeah, n- nothing like what we can do today. Right. So we've, we've almost, um, <laughs> we've we've, strayed a little bit from defining <laughs> liberal arts. We actually, this historic context though, and under. It reinforces, I think, maybe a fundamental point earlier, which is that you can't ossify yeah. a certain construction of the liberal arts, even if you find it in history, mm-hmm. because we're always changing and adapting. And, and I've seen people who talk who fancy themselves as a classical education purists. Okay. What, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? You know, it, uh, so... That's, oh, that's like the Greek gods, you know, like, you know, being a purist about what, you know, what the Greek the gods pure were. classical education. <laughs> that's right. The tradition. And they, and we look, you know, so solemnly with the tradition. Um, uh, I, I love it. Well, so just, we're, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time here and there's so many things I, I want. <laughs> I have a list of questions I could ask you. But, the Pandora's box is uh, open. This time. is, this has been absolutely fabulous. Could you, for our listeners, um, you know, we, we've looked at this historically, and I think it's important because we see how some of these terms have come uh, to be developed mm-hmm. and understood. And I think that's super important. Can we define for us just quickly, you know, what is an art? How is it different than <laughs> yes. science? And then um, how is that different than, and we've already talked a little bit about humanities and why should that be important to us? And maybe we can kind of summarize the end with that, with those few statements. Yes. Oh, and there's a, there's a lot there too, but, it, <laughs> but an art uh, in, uh, and art is, I would say, reasoned productivity. Um, it's reason ordered to productivity. Um, so I use the example of baking. You know, I can put, someone can take a glob of ingredients, certain ingredients, and perform a certain process upon them and bread will result. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's a, that could be like a lucky try. Sure. <laughs> That's not, we don't have an art That's yet. That's me baking. That's right. And then, and then suppose I were to assign, add memory to that so I can repeat it. Mm-hmm. Then we have a habit or a knack. Yeah. It's still not an art. Okay. Right. And someone can watch me and imitate, and imitate the process. It's still not an art. But then once I start ascertaining the whys and wherefores and bringing about precepts regarding it, that's the addition of reason. So this is this is where, for practically speaking, this is where you know you knowing it so well that you could say, well, I want this bread a little chewier, or I want it a little more flavorful this way, and then you you can adjust the ingredients because you know what each of the ingredients are doing to the overall. Yes, ex- yes, very very good, and and in fact, you have the sensibility about like it's not just 
simply trial and error, but it's like, oh, it's these ingredients. Well, like, oh, this needs this other ingredient. That that shows that you've got an art. You're working with some precepts here. So it's reason. Yeah. See, so it's not just habit. It's not just knack. It's reason. And this and this is the difference between the artist then and the technician. Okay. Too that a technician actually might be able to outdo an artist. So you can have a Michael Jordan of a basketball player, but he's not necessarily the best basketball coach. Mm. Because it's the application of the reason which makes it transferable that make, you know, that, that so if if he could, I mean, if he's just a natural, he knows how to do a layup or he can jump on Monday and land on Thursday and that just comes natural for him, but he couldn't show somebody else why that happens or how he does exactly. Then he's not really an artist. It's not the, it's not the reason attached to, or the, or the discipline he's gauged in needs to be susceptible to the reason. Yeah. Right. So I mean, the perform playing of basketball, I think can be an art. Um, but you know, the, you, the virtuos, there's a difference between the, the artist, which is capable of teaching then and the art itself, it becomes an art if it can be taught. Sure. Right. If it can be taught, but a technician isn't necessarily engaging in that reason aspect to it. Right. But he can outdo us maybe in virtuoso performance. Okay. Uh, and he should be valued accordingly. Now, so that's what makes an art. It's, it's sort of like reasoned order to productivity of making something. Mm-hmm. So the art of baking is reason uh, that's going to produce bread. The art of medicine is going to produ- be productive of health. The art, these are different kinds of sure. arts, right? So a mechanical art is going to create a useful object. Okay. You know, so, um, so there are craftsmanship. You can teach that there are precepts, you know, that can produce a really good tool or widget or something like that. So it's a really good bicycle. Now, now this, I'm going to take this out of the human element for just a moment. So a beaver builds a dam. That's not an art. That's not an art. No, he, he performed technique by instinct. Yes. Okay. He performed tech. Yeah. So there's a pattern to it that he ha- but not through the application of reason it was baked into him his beaverness i suppose yeah <laughs> his, his beaverness made the damn okay and so then a technician somebody who could follow a list of instructions or you know execute something or maybe it just comes natural for them to do it but they right. can't really explain why and 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 how you know any variation would change the effect and they couldn't teach it so they they become yeah you know, they merely a technician yeah they become a technician and you might be really appreciative of that technician. If that technician technician is the surgeon operating on your loved one sure. who needs that tumor removed. Well, that, so I don't want to downgrade the technician either. No, but, but that does, that does play something that we probably don't have time to get into here, but I, I see this happening because I've seen it in education, but I see it also in the medical field. There's, there's a lot of similarities here where every human being in, in a big I don't know, a, a sort of a corporate institutional way, a, a hospital, sometimes doctors are, are trained that every human being becomes almost like a machine. And so there's this one mechanical process for everybody right. versus what you were talking about in art where the doctor looks at the human being and their, their unique situation and knows how everything works, could teach an apprentice how to think this way. And medicine then becomes an art versus a technical. Yes. I, yeah. True? I think you're, yeah. The technical proficiency of it yeah. as important as the technical proficiency is. So I'm not trying to downgrade yeah. it, but just clarify our categories. Sure. Here. That's what I'm trying to do. So, so, uh, so we have these arts then. So arts reason arts are those fields or pursuits that are reason, uh, order to production yeah. to produce something. Um, and 
so we can talk about mechanical arts and uh, different kinds of arts. The uh, fine arts yeah. is reason applied to something that is an object of beauty that's observed as an end and of itself. It's sure. fine and final, that sort of thing. Of course the terms, that's a term from 19th century, that <laughs> bad time, but, that, uh, but that's what, a, that's what a fine art is. Yeah. So producing just an object of beauty, a liberal art then is, is reason that's productive of something. Yes. And it's, and it is productive of knowledge. Okay. It's productive of knowledge. This is why it's related to education. Then. That's right. Yeah. Because it's, it's the kind of art. It's the art where if you pursue it, the thing that gets produced is more knowledge. Mm. Um, the thing that gets produced or the thing that gets uh, ascertained or attained is more knowledge. If you, uh, you know, the art of baking produces more bread. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's ordered to the reasons yeah. that that's going to produce something. Um, but that's what makes a liberal art, a liberal art. Now, one thing we didn't do though, we're, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We didn't differentiate art from science. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> yeah. So science is itself a body of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is, um, it's, it's facts, it's true observations. And this is why Aristotle talks this way. You see it picked up by the medievals. Um, science, sciences always are, science always are either true or false. It's, it's either true that my colon performs this certain <laughs> function or it doesn't. <laughs> and so that's, that's science. Maybe I shouldn't have identified the colon, but I should. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I was just saying, I, I don't want to get too far off, but then we could get into the, the modern, the postmodern view that, you know, well, you're talking about, you know, white math here, you know, that, that, that this is all right. based on reason and, and logic. And it comes out that way because that's some sort of, you know, privileged uh, way of thinking about things. But um, yeah, I, so I digress. Yes. I, yes. Science is, <laughs> science, science is a body of knowledge. Science is a body of knowledge. Uh, and uh, it's either true or false. Whereas an art is always subject to some human judgment. Okay. So then how, uh, this is a question I know that's going to come up then how, you know, in the quadrivium, the seven liberal arts, the quadrivium, the last four you have, you have uh number, number in time, number in space, number yes, in yes. time and space. Um, are those sciences or arts? I think that those are sciences. Okay. And, uh, but this shows you now I'm declaring myself to follow certain voices from the past Uh and depart from others. Sure. Yeah. And I think anyone who gets into this enterprise has to do that. Eventually we have to come to that. If we're, if we're, unless we're going to use just a nebulous term, right? Right. (laughs) But the whole reason we're here is because we want (laughs) to. Exactly. So the trivium is arts or arts and the quadrivium, those are sciences or disciplines. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, is it Hugh of St. Victor uh, that identifies it that way? Or is it John of Salisbury? He, Hugh of St. Victor does it. Although at another place, he calls them seven liberal arts because it's, it's kind of a tradition by uh, his point okay. to do so. The differentiation between science and art is really worked out by Aristotle. Um, we also see Cassiodorus uh, uses this differentiation. So you've got three, uh, the trivium is he's grammar, rhetoric, then dialectic. And dialectic, he says, well, it's got science and it's kind of sciencey and artsy. <laughs> um, and then the quadrivium is clearly science okay. or discipline. They, they'll use the term discipline too. Um, but it's, uh, 
but there's a sense of human, it's human reason. And it's, it's the reason that recognizes patterns and then, and then the patterns that you teach and impart to someone else. Okay. So the arts, the, the rules that arts generate are always like rules of thumb. Ah, okay. So um, this, this is the human judgment part of it. You know, we have some vague or, or boundaries here, some vague ideas and, and we're using reason to achieve it, but there might be some variations here based on just our ability to intuit, to know, to uh, interpret various factors. So it's going to have some squishiness to it. Exactly. Which, which is why the trivium, those are arts. For example, think about a rule of grammar mm-hmm. versus a rule of math. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so let, you know, let, let's go to geometry, you know, uh, complementary angles add up to 180 degrees. Yep. True or false. Well, it's kind of true by definition. And there's no opinion about it. There's no judgment call about it. That just is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just is right or wrong. Whereas a rule of grammar, and I would still, there are rules of grammar. Yes. But those function like rules of thumb where you can kind of break them, you know, that or rhetoric. Rhetoric yes. is always situational. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so read the situation. It's never sort of connect the dots, insert tab A into slot B. Right. And there's the outcome. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And all arts are like that. Yes. Okay. All, that's part of being an, and it's human reason and it's, it's rational and it's grounded in the givenness of creation, you know, so it's not like a who's to say sort of thing, uh-huh. you know, they're real patterns in creation, um, but it's human reason applied to it. And because it's human reason, it's always sub- subjective. It's, there's a judgment call aspect to it. So I'd say like, they're like rules of thumb over against sciences, which are like F equals MA. That's a rule. That's just, <laughs> <it>. <laughs> right. you can't change one without affecting the, the whole equation. So then when we um, kind of bring this full circle, so we, we have our definition of the arts, liberal arts, uh, sciences, humanities, then the liberal arts are toward knowledge, right? So this yep. is the, the, it's the, reason. Yeah. Reason ordered to the production of knowledge. All arts are ordered, reason ordered to the production of blank and the liberal ones are the reason of order to the production of knowledge. Okay. So then in closing, let's, let's make this our closing statement because I have about 10 other questions I want to ask you, but I think it's John of Salisbury uh, in Metalogicon, if I'm, if I'm recalling correctly, where he talks about the idea that you, a, a true liberal arts education brings a person to a place where they don't need a teacher. Or the yes. is what does that mean exactly? Yes, it means not that they don't learn from other people. Mm-hmm. I would say it means that they are self-directed when they learn from other people. So their knowledge is not uh, their their progress in knowledge is not derivative. They are in command of their own progress in knowledge. So um, someone who is in the course of training, becoming liberally educated, of course, is going to be under the tutelage of someone else. Right. Um, But once you really have a command of the liberal arts, then it's not that there, you no longer have teachers in your life, that everyone in your life becomes a teacher. Mm, You're learning (laughs) from it. That's because you can, I can now read whole libraries in a self-directed way and harness them to the production of my knowledge. Yes. 
So you don't have to wait on a teacher to say, read this, and now I'll tell you what that means. And, you know, exactly. you're, you're the, able to even know what to read next or, or have some idea of, of where to go next. Yes. Yeah, so you become master of your own acquisition of knowledge. That's uh, what, So liberal arts are the arts that produce that kind of product. That's a fabulous way to put it. The master of your own acquisition of knowledge. That's a liberal, liberally educated person. Yeah. It doesn't make you know it all. It doesn't mean that there are people, I mean, I look, I'm, we're sitting in a room now filled with books and there's so many books made by, written by people who are smarter than I am and have stuff that I don't know. <laughs> but if I am liberally educated, I can become a master of that bookshelf by, I can select this one. I can leverage this and deploy this for my own first further usage in my acquisition of knowledge. If I have the liberal arts education, that's what I have. Fabulous. So you said at the beginning of the show that New St. Andrews uh, offers only one degree. Um, and uh, that degree is a degree in liberal arts and culture. Fabulous. And I would argue like the and culture is the humanities. It's <laughs> really what we need. <laughs> liberal arts and humanities. So now we're coming back to, to what does this mean? Right. Well, uh, folks, um, this has been a fabulous conversation and with, with Dr. Schlecht, and, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. And I want you to know that at Kepler Education, we have um, a dual enrollment credits with New St. Andrews. So if you're interested in checking out New St. Andrews um, to visit their website, uh, is it nsa.edu? Yes. Okay, visit nsa.edu or come to kepler.education, and you can learn more about our dual enrollment uh, agreement. where You can earn a couple of credits uh, if you want to head that direction and check out their liberal arts and culture degree. Dr. Schlecks, thanks so much for, for being with me today. Scott, it's been a delight. I love talking about this stuff, and you're a, a delight to be one of those interlocutors through the ages that I engage. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. I've learned so much. God bless everybody.